Well, good evening. evening. I'm excited to be home. Uh, Me and Heidi have been itching to come home and uh, just be with, just just to be with you in worship, uh, much less get the opportunity to uh, stand behind this pulpit and open God's word with you. That is a, that's a blessing. And thank you, Brother Mike, for, uh, uh, for allowing me to do that. I'll tell you, um, just, it's a blessing to have men like Brother Glenn and Brother Mike who have such uh, responsibility to God and to this pulpit and to this church and for them to just be willing to uh, let a clumsy preacher like me get up here and open the word and, and be able to be, step in their shoes and stand on their shoulders, it's, it's a blessing. So thank you, uh, both of you. Um, both of y'all have uh, poured into me and given me these opportunities. And so thank you very much for that. Uh, if you will, go ahead and open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1, I want to talk to you about this tonight. I want to talk to you um, about the power of desperate prayer. The power of desperate prayer. And I want to tell you a story real quick uh, before we get into this. Um, I'm taking a missions prep class. And it's uh, simply, it's, it's a pretty basic class. It's just kind of introducing you to what's the idea of missions. What does it look like? Uh, what's going to be your plan as a pastor when you're standing behind a pulpit one day and you're leading the congregation? What's going to be your purpose? How are you going to go about doing the work of missions in your church? And, and for this class, we have to read an autobiography of a missionary. And um, I didn't know a lot of missionaries. It's not, a, it's not a, one of those Jeopardy questions that I would do very well with. Uh, and so I kind of thought about it, and I thought about it, and one name came to my mind. And I can't tell you the, past, the, the sermon Brother Glenn preached that day, but I remember him using the example of a man named George Mueller. And I remember him using him as an example of prayer. And so that, that name just kind of settled down on me, and I, and I thought to myself, okay, well, I'm going to read, I'm going to find the autobiography of George Mueller, and I'm going to read his autobiography, and that's what I'm going to do my paper on for my missions class. And so I went to the library, and I found a, a book on George Mueller. It wasn't a very long book, and that was pretty exciting to me. I was like, I could read this in a couple of days, write a quick paper, be done with it, move on. And so um, I brought it to class to get it approved by the teacher, and, uh, you know, God doesn't do that that easy for me. You know, it seems other guys get a little easier. But the teacher looked at the book and said, you know, this is good, but there's a better one, and you need to go find it. And he, he gave me the exact name of the book. He said, it's literally called The Autobiography of George Mueller. And so I went back to the library, and uh, I found The Autobiography of George Mueller, and it was 700 and something pages long. <laughs> I went back to that professor, and I said, hey, brother, I, I, this thing is 700 pages long. If you want me to read this, I'll read this. But I mean, surely, I mean, that's almost as long as my Bible, you know? And, um, and he said, no, there, there's one that's more condensed, it's more concise. Go back and look for that. So I went back a third time, found the one he was wanting me to get. And my best friend in the class sits right next to me. And he, he did his on David Livingston. And his is a little pamphlet that's like 100 pages long. And I'm thinking, Man, how do I get the short end of this stick? And so I, I, got, I got that book, and I read the autobiography of George Mueller, and I'm so glad I did. Um, George Mueller was a man who understood how to pray. And, and I know that sounds simple, and I know that sounds like something that you would think we as Christians would know how to do and go about. But here's what I've come to understand. When people get saved, 
we as a church, we tell them to read their Bibles and to pray, but then we don't teach them how to read their Bibles and how to pray. That's what school has taught me the most so far. I mean, I, I thought I knew how to read my Bible. I come from a powerhouse church of Hillcrest Baptist Church. I mean, don't you know, I, can, I, I should know how to read my Bible. And when I got to school, I found out I didn't know how to read my Bible. And so then I read this autobiography of George Mueller, and guess what I found out? I ain't got a clue how to pray. And so uh, I, I was, uh, I mean, God just really impressed this man's uh, testimony on my life. And, it, and that's what I want to share with you today, the power of a desperate prayer. If you don't know anything about George Mueller, let me just tell you real quick. His whole life's goal was to prove to the people in his day. He lived in the 1800s, right? This should be a day that uh, you got revivals going around and people are hungry for the Word of God. And in his day, he looked out across the community of Christians and this is what he diagnosed them, that they didn't live like God was really alive. In the 1800s. In the 1800s, he looked out in the community of Christians and said, man, we say God's alive, we act like God's alive, but we don't really practice like God is really alive. And so he based his entire ministry off totally relying on God for everything. I mean, he didn't take a salary. He, did, he, he ended up building um, orphanages for over a thousand orphans that he housed there. He didn't take a salary for that. He simply went to his knees and prayed about it. When I looked at my life and I began to look at how weak I, I, I am and how much I rely on things of this world, and, and I worry about my finances, I worry about my income, I worry about God's will in my life, I worry about where my first pastorate's going to be, I worry about getting through school, I worried about starting a family with my wife, I worry about all these things, and I get up behind the pulpit and I tell people, hey, God lives, and God can change your life, but in my life, I wasn't going home hitting my knees and bringing those request to God. And this is what I've come to find out. And Heidi hates this question because now anytime she brings something to me, my first question to her is, have you prayed about it? Have you prayed about it? And so today I want to talk to you about the power of desperate prayer. I understand you just came off of a, a, a great time, a revival, a pastor's conference. You had pastors far better at expositing the word of God than me stand behind here. Um, but Nehemiah is going to show us that prayer is always applicable. Prayer is always needed. In the days of Nehemiah, 100 years almost before Nehemiah comes to Israel, God has already sent his people back home. The captivity is over. Under Zerubbabel, they had already gone back home, established Israel. And then 13 years before Nehemiah, Ezra, Ezra the prophet, uh, I mean the priest, had gone back and he had started a spiritual revival. And so things seem to be working uh, in the people of God's favor. Things seem to be getting back on track. Things seem to be getting back in line. But we're going to look at what Nehemiah saw here tonight, okay? So let's go to the Lord in prayer and let's dive in. Dear Lord, we just come to you tonight, God. Lord, I just want to turn this uh, sermon over to you, Lord. It's not about uh, me. It's not about uh, all these people here, God. Lord, we want to lift you up and put you in your proper place here at Hillcrest Baptist Church. God, I just pray that your spirit fall on us. God, I pray that you uh, fill the speaker, Lord. I pray that you fill the hearer, Lord. And I pray that when we come to our time of invitation, Lord, that we will not uh, simply look at this as a time that uh, we can uh, just come and, and fall here, Lord, but that we will really genuinely 
experience a power of prayer, that we will genuinely turn over our burdens, that we will genuinely let go of those things, God, that uh, we allow to hold us down. And God, I pray that we will experience what desperate prayer really looks like for our church and for our day of need. God, use the life of Nehemiah, God. Open your scriptures, Lord. Open your word and speak to us as we come to you tonight. And we'll give you all the praise and glory for it. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 1. I'm going to read all 11 verses and then we'll come back to it here, okay? Verse 1 says this. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakali, And it came to pass in the month of Kislu, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, and he, certain men of Judea, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire." And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And I said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before you now day and night. For the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments, which you commanded by your servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee the word that you commanded the servant Moses, saying, If you transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. And if you turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though you were cast out unto the uttermost part of heaven, yet will I gather them from thence, and I will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now these are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, let now... Your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and prosper. I pray thy servant this day that you would grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. When we look at the power of Nehemiah's prayer, and we know the story behind Nehemiah, that this man was sent to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. The first thing that stands out to me when I look into Nehemiah's life is that before we ever get to the prayer, Nehemiah had a desperate desire for his people. He had a desperate desire for his people. Look at what it says there. It it says that Nehemiah, he's here in the month of Kislu in the 20th year, and I was in Shushan, the palace. Now, we also know because of verse 11 that he was the king to the cupbearer. I don't need to expound on that. Brother Glenn uh, and preachers have expounded on that. You know uh, what that, uh, how, how honorable of service that he would have been to the king. I mean, Nehemiah had it all. Uh, Shushan, this palace here, was created by Darius the Great. It was the most beautiful palace in all the land of Persia. There was gold everywhere. I mean, there was nothing that you could want at the palace of Shushan. 
This was the capital of the mighty Persian Empire. There was nothing that Nehemiah could have wanted. Understand this, Nehemiah in his position, he had power. Nehemiah in his position would have had pleasure. He would have been taken care of. Nehemiah in his position would have even had the ear of the king. I mean, there was nothing that Nehemiah needed. When we look at ourselves, when I look at our churches, when I look at Hillcrest, you have a a palace here of a church. You have a palace that God has built for you. There is nothing that you cannot get here at this church. You can find the power of God at this church. You can find the pleasure of God at this church. You can find the promise of God at this church. But here's what we need to see about Nehemiah. Just because Nehemiah had it all there, he didn't turn a blind eye to his people that were suffering. I, I don't know. Um, I, 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 when I look at the timeline, I don't believe Nehemiah had ever been to Israel. We, we, we don't really know. I mean, I, I, I don't see it here in the text where, I mean, Nehemiah may have never laid his eyes on the land of Israel. He knew he was a captive. He knew that he was a slave to this barbarian king. He knew where he came from. But, I mean, think about this. Nehemiah may have grown up in splendor. But Nehemiah had a heart, had a desire for these people. Look what it says. It says, My brother came to me and certain other men, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Notice his reaction here in verse 4. When they bring this report of the people who had gone back probably under the leadership of Ezra 13 years earlier, and he's getting this report, and everything is destroyed in Jerusalem. Everything's being broke down. Everything's being torn down in these people's lives. Look at verse 4 with me. Look at his response. He said, I sat down, I wept, I mourned for certain days. Now, a lot of times we would just read that, that, that part certain days and skip over it. If we were to go to chapter 2 and I were to show you the request that he brings to the king, it tells us that it was in the month Nisan. This right here in chapter 1 tells us that this was in the month Kislu. So what Nehemiah is telling us here in verse 4 is from the month Kislu to Nisan, which is four months, four months, he has this burden of the people on his heart. Look at him. He's, he, he's sitting down. He's weeping. He's mourning. He's fasting. He's praying before the God of heaven for four months. Four months. I don't know how well you know Nehemiah's story, but when he finally gets back, it only takes him 52 days to repair the wall. I think there's a lesson in that. Preparation for what God has us to do Seeking God's will, making sure we're in God's will, ought to take more time than actually doing the work. Amen. A lot of times we, we, we want to skip over the preparation phase. See, Nehemiah never would have been so determined. Nehemiah never would have had such a fire in his belly for God. Nehemiah would have never had, uh, been able to do what he could have done if he didn't take the time to prepare. Amen. For four months, this man is in weeping and fasting and mourning Seeking for God an answer. Seeking God. Praying to God for four months. To me, uh, just this section, it reminds me and it parallels the life of Jesus so well. Can you think about that? 
When we think about the life of Jesus, and, and especially the way John tells us about Jesus, how he was the Word and he was with God. I mean, Jesus is sitting up in heaven and he has everything. He has all power. He has all glory. Hey, Jesus didn't need to come to earth in order to get all power and glory. No, he already had it. If anything, if we were going to contrast Nehemiah and Jesus, as Jesus wasn't the slave. Jesus was the king. He was already sitting on the throne. And he looked down at earth, and he had a heart, and he had a desire for the people. It hurt him to see us the way we are. It hurt him. It bothered him that the people that should be God's people were so destroyed that they were in ruins. That we were in our sins. We were as filthy rags. The prophets pull no punches. I've recently been reading through the, 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 the prophetic books of the Bible. And, and I don't mean to be dirty or obscene or at all, but if God said it, it's not obscene. It's the truth. But the prophets compared the sin of Israel to a minstrel cloth. I'm not going to go into that. If you don't know what that is, go look it up. But in God's view, our sin, the way that, I mean, to Him, it is absolutely disgusting. Whatever you could think of that would totally repulse you and turn you away, that's how your sin is to God. And here Jesus is in glory of glories, but yet He loved you and desired you enough. That Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 says that He counted all that as if it were nothing. To take on the form of man. To become obedient to the death of a cross. Do you have that kind of desire for your brothers and sisters? Do you have that kind of desire for this church? I'll tell you what, that, when, when I look at the, the heart of Nehemiah and how he just loved his people so much, people that he may have never even laid his eyes on, people he may not even know. When's the last time you prayed and fasted and mourned over your church? What about one week? Nehemiah did it for four months. So we see his desire for his people, and that leads into his prayer here in verse 5. Now, verse 5 through 11, we have Nehemiah's prayer. This is his actual prayer uh, that he was praying to God. It may not be word for word because this is more likely Nehemiah's diary that he's writing, so he's probably just giving us the heart of the message. I, I, I would say for over four months, Nehemiah probably had some very detailed discussions with God. And so, but what we see here is just kind of the overarching theme. And, and something that I find interesting is uh, the lament psalms, which are the psalms of Israel that are uh, the Israelites crying out in anguish to God. They, they are very similar to his uh, prayer here. And minus one thing. In the Psalms of Lament, there's a complaint that Israel brings to God. Hey, God, we're dealing with this here. Hey, we're dealing with this problem. We're dealing with this issue. These people are about to invade us. We need you to handle it. But the difference between the Lament Psalms and Nehemiah's prayer is Nehemiah's prayer is a prayer of repentance. There is no excuse. There is no excuse with Nehemiah. So let's get into this here. The first thing that we want to see about this prayer is that if we are going to experience the power of desperate prayer, we need to have a dynamic worship. We need to come to God in dynamic worship. Look at this, verse 5. Nehemiah starts with worship here of God, and he said, I beseech you. That means I beg of you. That means I plead of you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe 
His commandments. Nehemiah comes to God, and the first thing that he mentions about God is how great and terrible He is. That word great in the Hebrew, it means to be unknowable or to be unique. Hey God, I know you are so much different than I am. You're holy, holy, holy. You're so separate than I am. You're so much more unique than I am. Hey God, I know you're the only one that can answer this prayer. See, Nehemiah comes to God and he places God in his proper place. A lot of times when we come to God in prayer, we want to immediately go uh, either to a confession time where we want to tell God about all our issues and all the sins that we've committed, or really what we want to do is we want to hurry up and get to the uh, uh, request time where we can rub our little genie bottle and ask God to heal us and ask God to bring us uh, a pastor and ask God to uh, fix our marriage and ask God to do this and do that. And God's saying, wait a second. You're asking me to do all these things, but you haven't placed me in the proper place in your life. We need to take the time. We need to understand that if, we're going to, if you want to experience the power of prayer in your life, if you want to see God move in your life, you need to take the time and put God where He deserves to be. Uh, I'm right now currently the interim pastor at a, a, a church called Horse Creek. Heidi gets... Uh, she laughs at me all the time because I get tongue twisted and half the time I, I'm, I almost say Hillcrest and have to stop myself because everything starts with an H and I've always said Hillcrest my whole life and so they haven't kicked me out yet so it, it's okay. Um, but when I came to that church, that church was hurting. I had no clue. I knew the pastor had stepped down. I knew there would probably be some issues but I didn't know all the, everything they were going through. And so my, my prayer to God was, hey God, I don't know how to minister to these people. I don't know these people. But God, they're your people. God, I need you to, I need you to work here. I can't do anything. I don't know how to preach to them. I don't know what they're... I mean, it's easy to come and preach to people that I know. Nehemiah here, is, that's what he's doing. He's saying, hey God, you're so, you know the problems. You, I want to put you exactly where you need to be, how you can answer our prayers. And then look, he, he, he gives God the proper attribute. He says, God, not only are you great and terrible, but you're the God that keeps covenant and mercy. You're the God that keeps covenant and mercy. God, uh, Nehemiah here is saying, hey God, you never change. There's nothing unchangeable about you. You're sovereign. You're in control. Uh, sovereign is not a word that we like to use a lot because uh, Calvinists take it to an extreme extent. But what you need to understand, what I need to understand, is that this word doesn't change. God is sovereign. There's nothing wrong with that. That's His attribute. That's who He is. And I'm glad He is. Because if He wasn't sovereign and He didn't know what to do, then why would I put my hope in Him? That's what Nehemiah is calling out to God. But then also, look, he, he recognizes the responsibility of man in, in his worship here. He says, look, you're, you're, God, you keep the covenant. You show us mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. What Nehemiah here is just stating the absolute truth of God. This goes back to the uh, Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy law. This goes back to the Levitical law. This goes back to the Old Testament law that Israel grew up with. Uh, God's whole message was, hey, Israel, I love you. I want to bless you. But these are my rules. These are my laws. And if you keep them, I'll continue to bless you. And if you don't keep them, then I will punish you. And Nehemiah is just stating here in his worship experience, see, he puts God on the throne. And that's what I want to challenge you to do. In your prayer life, do you put God on the throne? Do you put God on the throne? 
One of my favorite songs that has recently uh, been released, you probably heard of it by Corey Asbury, called The Reckless Love. Reckless Love of God. And here's the lyrics. It says, Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, how it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. And I could not earn it. I couldn't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. There's no shadow you won't light up. There's no mountain you won't climb up coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down. There's no lie you won't tear down coming after me. Man, when we come to God, why don't we come to Him starting off that way? Before you come and dump all your junk on Him and ask Him to wipe all that clean, why don't you start off uh, distancing yourself, putting Him where He needs to be and putting yourself where you need to be? That's what we see here in Nehemiah's prayer. He starts off with a dynamic worship, but then he moves on. He moves on. He goes from a dynamic worship. And if we want to have the power of desperate prayer in our lives, we can't just stay in a dynamic worship. We've got to move on. And when we move on, it should lead us into a detailed confession. A detailed confession. Look at this. Verse 6. He says, Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open, that you may know the prayer of your servant which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. Verse 7 says, For we have dealt very corruptly against you, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments, which thou commandest your servant Moses. All right, so when we go to verse 6, Nehemiah is transitioning out of this uh, worship time and he's transitioning into this confession time. He's going to confess to God the sins of the people of Israel and he's going to confess to God the sins of himself. Uh, I think in America today, we're so individualistic and we're so worried about our own sins that we will pray for ourselves. But how many times have you seen people weeping at the altar praying for the sins of everybody in the church. See, Israel understood that this covenant that God had with Israel wasn't just with each individual Israelite, though it was, but it was with the entire nation. Your salvation, isn't, though it is individual to you, and you cannot pass that salvation on to someone else, you're put into a body. Ephesians tells us that, that we are a body of believers. So when you sin, let me ask you this, when you have infection in your body, does it not affect the entire body no matter where it's at? When you sin, it affects the entire body. I don't care how little it is. I don't care how uh, minute it is, but it affects the entire body. And here's what I want to show you about Nehemiah. Nehemiah understood this, that if he was going to, to get this sin of not only his life, but the sin of his people wiped away, he had to make sure God was being attentive. Look at the way he addresses him there at the very beginning. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes be open. Uh, Nehemiah is saying, God, I know you listen and I know you see, but God, I need you to hear us. I need you to, to look at us. God, I need you to focus on us. Because God, I've got something I need to confess. I know in my own life, and I'm sure in yours, a lot of times we kind of go through confessing our sins as if we're just going through a check mark box. Yeah, God, I did that. Yeah, God, I did that. Forgive me of that. Forgive me of that. Forgive me of this. 
Forgive me of that. But God wants us to be detailed in the way we address Him with our sins. He wants us to be detailed in the way we address Him. Uh, remember, this is over a time frame of four months. I can promise you, Nehemiah prayed more intricately, more detailed than what we see here in verse 6 and 7. But Nehemiah has given us the summary of his statement and he wanted to make sure that God's attention is focused on him. Now this is what I have to say uh, for the leaders. Brother Mike, Brother Chris, Brother Glenn, you Sunday school teachers, the leader, Brother Travis. What we see about Nehemiah here is Nehemiah set the example for the rest of the congregation. Amen. Nehemiah set the example for the rest of the people. Because look, I want to show you this. Right here, he's praying by himself, isn't he? Verse 6 and verse 7, he, you can tell this is just uh, uh, Nehemiah crying out to God. Now real quick, flip over and go to verse 11. Look at verse 11. When he closes his prayer, look what it says. It says, O Lord, I beseech you, let now your ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants. For four months... Nehemiah is upset. Four months, Nehemiah is fasting. Four months, Nehemiah is praying. What do you think of his sphere of influence? Those people that know Nehemiah, his friends that he has in the palace, the other Jews that are around him, do you not think they noticed something was wrong with Nehemiah? We see in chapter 2, the king finally catches on four months later, but the king's a pagan king. It ought to take time for the pagan world to recognize something wrong is with us, but it ought to not take long for our brothers and sisters in Christ to recognize that we're, trying, we're burdened with the sin. And not just our own personal sin, we're burdened with the sin of each and every individual in our church. I, I, I don't mean to bring judgment on anybody. I don't mean to bring judgment on this church. Hey, but we've got to start crying. We've got to start weeping. We've got to start being broken when the people in our churches, when families are falling apart in the church pews. When mother and father are, are divorcing in the church pews. That's got to bother us. And if our leaders aren't going to be the first ones to be crying their eyes out, don't think that it's going to all of a sudden happen from the pew. From the, it's got to start from the pulpit. Nehemiah understood here that in order to have this, this power of desperate prayer in his life, even though God was moving on him, God was burdening him with his sins, God, God was burdening him with the sins that maybe he didn't even commit, but it was people of a different generation, of a different time, it didn't matter. Nehemiah wanted to get it and confess it before God. Verse 7, he shows us the detailed approach that he has here. Verse 7, he says, We've dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments. He said, God, everything you told us to do, we haven't done it. Yeah. Every single thing you've told us to do, we haven't done it. When God tells us that uh, in Matthew uh, chapter uh, 28, 18 through uh, 20, and He sends us out on the Great Commission, and He says, hey, all power has been given to me on heaven and earth, and so you go and you make disciples. How many of you have made a disciple here recently? Can I go ahead and tell you, you've sinned. It, uh, and it's not even necessarily have you made a disciple, because you can't make a disciple. Have you been a witness for Him? Have you spoke up for him recently? Have you talked to anybody about Jesus? We got March Madness here. You'll be talking about your favorite basketball teams, 
uh, we've got softball starting up. You'll be talking about your softball teams. You can talk about work all day long. But you run into people each and every day of your lives. And how many times do you bring up the name of Jesus? That's a sin, guys. That's a sin. That's breaking God's commandment. Nehemiah here wasn't afraid to be honest with God. He wasn't afraid to just, uh, just open his heart up, open his life up, and just ask God to expose it to him, and he'd confess it. I'm afraid our churches, we've got to the point that, that it's almost like a routine. It's almost just like a process. As long as we, are, uh, we wake up in the morning and we really ask God to forgive us of our minute individual sins, but then we just totally forget about the rest of the body. Nehemiah understood that he, if he was going to have the power of God on his life, if he was going to show the power of desperate prayer, he had to be detailed in his confession. But then lastly, look at this. Nehemiah understood that if he was going to have the power of God on his life and in his prayer life, if he was going to pray desperately, then he had to have a determined request. A determined request. Look in verse 8. He says, I remember, remember, I beseech thee the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if you turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though you were cast out, I will gather you from thence and will bring them into a place that I've chosen to set my name. Here's what I love about Nehemiah, because again, this is four months of praying that he has condensed into six verses. But right here in this verse, when he comes to God with his request, when he brings to God the desires of his heart, he quotes God's scripture. If you go back and you read uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 4, if you go read Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 25 through 27, uh, I mean, almost exactly what he just prayed in those two verses were almost exactly what God had said would happen. Nehemiah didn't uh, just take the good part of God's message. He could have very easily said, you know what, God, you've already, uh, we've already disobeyed you. You've already scattered us. You've already judged us. Now, God, it's time for you to bring us back. That's what we like to do. A lot of times we like to leave out the part of God's word that brings judgment on our lives, that brings conviction in our lives because we don't want to deal with that. But then uh, we want to take those parts of God that, that, that are just uh, a blessing to us and we want to apply that to our lives. Nehemiah doesn't do that. He didn't take a shortcut here. Right. He takes the conviction, he takes the judgment, and he takes the blessing. And he says, God, remember. Remember. Yes, God, we failed you. We deserve to be here. We deserve to be captives. We deserve to be where we're at right now. But God, you also promised that if we would come back to you, if we would repent and if we would really be broken before you, there's not a place that we could go that you wouldn't go to bring us back in. Nehemiah had a very determined request here. And I love the way he, he describes the, the, these people here. Look, verse 10, he says, Now these are the servants and thy people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Jeremiah uh, chapter 23, verses 7 through 8, Jeremiah predicted that there would be a day God, God's word moved into Jeremiah's life and he predicted there would be a day that people would no longer talk about the captivity coming out of Egypt into Israel, but they would talk about what God did when he brought his people out of Babylon back to Israel. Nehemiah's praying for this. Hey God, uh, it's time for you 
to do exactly what you said you were going to do. You've brought us back into the land. We've established temple in the land. But God, we're still a reproach. God, we're still beaten down. We're still under the foot of our oppressors. God, we need you to do something. We need you to be faithful to your word. We need to remind you and put it in front of you. Jesus told us that when we pray, remember the parable of the widow and the unjust ruler? The widow and the unjust ruler, the, Jesus said, when you pray, you, you ought to constantly be going. Just like this widow went to the unjust ruler and constantly pleaded her case and constantly brought it up and constantly sought justice. In the Greek, in fact, what it talks about is literally to be poking him in the eye. Could you imagine the nuisance it would be to poke somebody in the eye constantly? Heidi likes to poke me in the belly button. Drives me insane. I mean, it's a nuisance. But if someone were to constantly be coming up and poking you and poking you and poking you, you'd eventually do what they were asking you to do just to get them to stop. And that's what Nehemiah here is saying. God, remember. Remember what you said. Hey, yes, you were faithful to judge us, but God, uh, it's time for you to redeem us. It's time for you to bring us back. It's time for you to show your power again in our lives. And Nehemiah could ask for that. Why? Because he placed God where he was supposed to be. He was detailed in his confession. And now he could demand God's word to come to fruition. Nehemiah understood that it wasn't about Nehemiah. It was all about God working through Nehemiah. I love the way he ends this here in verse 11. He says, at the end, he says, I pray thee that your servant this day grant him mercy in the sight of this man. If he hadn't gave us that last verse to let us know that he was the cupbearer to the king, we'd had no clue that Nehemiah was talking about the king of the entire Persian empire. And see, that's what will happen when you truly trust in God, when you truly put all your burdens and rely on God, when you truly start praying desperately to have God, all of a sudden, all those people that seem like they could stand in your way, that seem like they could stop you, they become just a man. They become just another bump in the road, just another trophy to put up in God's trophy case for when people ask you what's going on in your life and you can point to and say, hey, my God redeemed me. My God has done things in my life. My God has done things in my church's life. Yes, we've gone through rough times. Yes, we strayed away from Him, but He has been faithful and He has brought us back again. I want to close with this story. I read this story recently about uh, some tribes in Africa. And, and when they first came to, uh, a missionary went out there and reached them with the gospel and, and they were saved. Uh, these people had a tradition that they would uh, go off into the brush of Africa and, and they would travel the same path every single day and they would pray in, in different places. So, like, if I got saved, I would walk off in this direction and I would pray to God and I would seek God's will for my life and my family and my tribe. And Brother Mike would go this way and Brother Glenn would go this way and Brother Travis would go this way. And, and what happened is that they were so regular and they were so faithful in their prayer lives that they began to, uh, all the grass that they uh, had, would walk on would die. I mean, they were so faithful in their prayer life that they began to, uh, to cut little paths and people could see, hey, uh, what's, what is that path for? Oh, well, brother so-and-so's over there praying and brother so-and-so's over there praying. But then what it also did is when you looked at somebody's path and you saw the grass start to grow up and you saw the grass start to come back, you know that brother ain't praying. He hasn't been out to his prayer path in a while. And so they would go to him and say, hey, brother, you got grass growing <laughs> 
You got grass growing on your road. We know you ain't been praying. Don't stop praying. Don't stop praying. When I look at my life, I can say I I need to reestablish my prayer path. I need to wear that thing out. If I want to see God's movement on my life, if I want to see God's movement, not just for me individually, but for you as a body, if I want to see the movement of God on Horse Creek Baptist Church where He has placed me, if I want to see the movement of God on Clear Creek Baptist Bible College, if I want to see the movement of God in Hillcrest, and if I want to see the man of God standing behind Hillcrest's pulpit, somebody's got to be tearing up the prayer path. You can look at everything else you want to look at in your life. You can make any excuse that you want to make in your life. But if you're not willing to tear up the prayer path for God, don't blame God when the things fall apart. Don't blame people when things fall apart. If you have grass growing on your prayer path.